So, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, what a treat to be together this morning, and particularly, Jean, to imagine you and Melissa and Colin in Hawaii. I remember um, many years ago when Thich Nhat Hanh was traveling with us, and look at that, everyone. Oh, how beautiful. The early dawn. Anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh traveling with us in North America, and everywhere he went, he wore a thick coat as if to keep his body and mind safe from the cold of North America. It was, it was spring, a spring teachings, and um, he couldn't seem to warm up. I remember he had a scarf around his neck, and um, toward the end of the visit, there was a sojourn in the Hawaiian Islands, meeting with Aiken Roshi and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. This was a long time ago when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to the United States. And he and Sister Chung Kong, Sister Fung then, traveled with um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and the Community of Mindful Living to the Hawaiian Islands, to the Big Island, or maybe to Maui. I don't remember which island, but um, Arnie Kotler describes the most extraordinary experience of Thich Nhat Hanh in the airplane with his coat on, and then going down the steps in, um, in Hawaii and looking at Sister Chung Kam as they stood on the, somewhere it was, they were outside standing there. He looked at Sister Chung Kam and she looked at him and he slowly opened up his coat and let it drop and said, I, I am home. The, the beautiful air and the humidity of the, of the islands really reminded he and Sister Chung Kam of Vietnam, and the sound of the birds and, and the tropical um, richness of that world. So um, when I think of you there, Jean, I wish that you have that same kind of rest and um, rejuvenation and uh, freshness that Thich Nhat Hanh had so many years ago. And it, it's interesting to be thinking very much this morning, and thank you, Again and again, dear Sangha, for including Thich Nhat Hanh in the in the memory bank as we turn really turn toward our root teachers and those who've given us true nourishment over the years and um, wish for their well being and also their health and um, and and depth of practice. And you know, I think um, the fact that we're studying Earthland's um, book, The Deepest Peace Contemplations from a season of stillness is, is significant in these extraordinarily difficult and challenging times when there is so much um, to, be, uh, to be aware of and so much um, bellicose uh, fighting in the world, to, to have a chance to take a breath, to take a look and to, um, to settle down. And this is not to say that this is easy work and certainly her essays in this book are not always easy or um, as some people say, a spiritual bypass where you're turning away from everything difficult and checking out and floating in the world of peace, but really recognizing um, what it takes to come home and to, to find peace in, in troubled times. So I, I'm grateful for, for her essays. And in particular, um, I wanted to focus this morning on Rattling Bones, My Ancient Stories, where she, tells a simple, I'm actually going to read it and let, um, it's short enough so that we could actually immerse. And a large part of her encouragement with this book is that we take the time to savor the words. And so these words are 
are important words and they have everything to do with tasting the truth of the Tathagata's words, with biting down and trying to digest um, who we are and what we're made of. So if I may, I'll turn on this light and read from Earthland, Rattling Bones, My Ancient Stories. My own bones, she writes, rattle over the moments that have passed in the night at the dark and the stars of the desert where she lives are the only light. Um, the ancient stories of the day of yesterday crowd around me. I excavate the gem, gems of wisdom left behind. And I remember my father buried many years ago. I rattle his bones. An altar with photos in the corner of the house brings memory. I remember him watching. I remember watching him inhale freshly cut grass, making each moment infinite, binding his inner silence to his personal river and bones. He was inside peace and I could see it on his face. As a sharecropper, I'm jumping here ahead a bit. As a sharecropper's son in Louisiana in the early 1900s, my father's life was made of things others tossed away. So I, I love that line. As a sharecropper's son, and, and Earthland is a descendant of slaves and sharecroppers, rural landholders in Louisiana. As a sharecropper's son in Louisiana in the early 1900s, my father's life was made of things others tossed away. He savaged, he salvaged furniture, brought worn, warm, worn clothes back to life. The pig's head, ear, tail, feet, and snout, leftovers his family was given by the family who owned the land that he worked were pickled, turned into hogshead cheese or the skins were fried into what we called cracklin. I remember my, this is in particular, what I want us to hear. I remember in particular my father's ritual of gumbo making and the wisdom of scrapping together discarded things. The fish stock was made from scraps of fish. Money was scraped together for ingredients of the soup. My father's rough hands shucked oysters, medium-sized shrimp, Three crabs, dried, oops, link sausages, garlic, green onions, shallots, bell pepper, celery, filet spice, secret things to continue the preparations, breathing in and out. He lifted his knife, pulled back his fingertips, no words, only his presence, making gumbo for him our native food was not cooking. It was a ritual of his past. The bones were rattling. His mother's spirit was present, her hair long, down her back, all the way to her feet. She smoked a pipe, just as my father did every day. She stood behind her son who had aged. She was his ancient story and therefore mine. Without acknowledging her, I don't know my father's wisdom. My father chopped and cleaned the fish, pulling the vein and waste of the shrimp, excavating a part of the crab not to be eaten, gumbo 
is a soup of sacrifices. The giving of life, this exchange of one life for another must be acknowledged. The handling of the bodies must be kind. These sacrifices must be done in awareness if done at all. I breathe my father's life, my father's bones, the life of his mother and the life of the animals whose bones continue to exist. Um, there's more, uh, there's more to be read, maybe just a tiny bit more. So we don't end on a remote spiritual note at all. The roux, the gravy, the gumbo made with flour and oil requires attention just as ancient, ancient stories do. Being lost in thoughts leads to burning food. Lost in thought, we miss the dance of onions, garlic, celery, and bell pepper snapping in hot oil. Stock made days earlier, poured into the pot, seafood layered in time, slow hours simmering in a tall pot, lengthen the silent prayer of the day into, into years to come. And when the extended family arrives, prays, eats, and falls to the sofa with full bellies, the transmission is complete between my father and me, his daughter. I observe his concentration. That day I chose to cook, I chose a cook as my teacher. <laughs> I chose the preparation of food as a ceremony where cooking is not just cooking. Together, my father and I chose the ancient work of stooping over fire to prepare food for a hungry community. We eat this food as medicine, the food that has been prayed over, meditated with, where the bones of the animals were lifted in honor. I rattle the bones of my family history and taste the deep flavor of this food. I added a few words there to the stew in honor of Earthland and in honor of the realization as Thich Nhat Hanh says that this food is the gift of the whole universe, the earth, the sky and much hard work. And in this food, I see clearly the presence of the entire universe supporting my existence. And of course, the food we're eating in these days, as Earthland mentions, rattles our bones. It's made of forgotten waste, thrown away food. Everyone knows, many know the story of Suzuki Roshi traveling through the market after market days and picking up the ragged forgotten vegetables and taking them home to his temple to make true food out of forgotten and discarded wealth. And this is a time when we have a chance to actually harvest and make peace out of non-peace elements. And Earthland, as a person who's lived on the streets, lived at the edge of the world, is a descendant of slaves and slave, uh, enslaved people and sharecroppers, knows what it means to rattle the bones and taste the truth of the Tathagata's words in a bowl of steaming gumbo. So I love that this chapter is early in the book. To me, reading through the book the other night, uh, carefully and fully, 
it was this chapter that really called, called to me to rattle the bones, maybe because this is a time of harvest, of beginning to bring in uh, the beautiful crops. I have an ear of um, ancestral Tewa corn here on the desk, just to remember the native foodways that are being revitalized now and brought back to life. Our teacher and friend Roxanne Swensel reminding us a short week ago that the corn mother is speaking to us, calling to us uh, and advising us, rattling our bones and bringing us back to life. So this matter of tasting the truth of rattled bones is sometimes difficult to digest and it helps to, to remember um, to take the time to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words in a bowl of gumbo or in a, in a grain of corn or in the taste of fresh water. And now for years practicing in the early years with Thich Nhat Hanh at Plum Village, he noticed how quickly Americans eat, chewing up and swallowing and hurrying and talking while we eat and encouraged us to just stop and drop down and to observe the food in our hands. So I remember him holding a bowl of, um, of food and really looking into the bowl of food, breathing in the scent of the food, uh, contemplating the gift of real food as Earthland does in this, in this early chapter, uh, remembering she names all the food, the, um, the shrimp, deveining the shrimp, the, the fish that she gets, the discarded fish, the tomatoes, the peppers, the peppers sizzling in oil, the, the onions. So you can feel and smell with all of the senses coming back to life. And in Plum Village, when we had 30 day long intensive practice periods, one of the most prevalent through lines throughout the summer was stopping during a meal and really contemplating the food. And this is something that we can do every day in our practice to take the time to taste the taste of peace, to take the time to listen and hear within us the sound of the earth crying if we slow down enough to really take in what we're holding in our two hands. So the mitigation that Thich Nhat Hanh suggested and we had to adapt to, and it called for a lot of resilience on our part, was chewing each bite of food 50 times. Yes, 50 times. I remember Roshi Joan Halifax then, a young student in the Dharma and in Plum Village, this was in the 1980s, saying she felt during those long practice periods, she felt a little like, an old cow in the field chewing her cud, so chewing 50, and we did this. We'd also learned to take rather large bites of food, I have to confess. So we, we dipped into the bowl, took a large bite of food and chew, chew, chew 50 times so that the food and the mouth felt that rattling of bones behind us as we ate. And it was extraordinary to be in a room with people chewing like that. It's, you might try it this morning. Um, 
when it's time to eat something, at least maybe for the first four bites, because as the summer unfolded and as our practice unfolded in the moment uh, generated by our commitment to be together and really not turn away from the rattling of the bones of our ancestors. And there were people from all over the world. We called that Sangha the floating Sangha. People coming from Vietnam, from uh, Brooklyn, New York, from Germany, from, for, from other parts of France, from South Korea, from all over the world to spend 30 days in mindful attention and to renew the ancestral path of peace. So adapting, uh, after the encouragement to chew 50 times, Thich Nhat Hanh could see that actually people weren't finishing breakfast until a long time after the gong finally sounded. So we adapted down to four bites of food. And I, I remembered this this morning, rereading Rattling the Bones. Um, so with the first bite, may all be, may I taste the truth of loving kindness. And then you take a bite of the cereal and chew it 50 times. Really chew the truth of loving kindness. And, you know, as chewing and as the food dissolved and became more liquefied and available for the bloodstream, the spreading warmth and flavor of loving kindness was absolutely available. So with this first bite of food, may I taste the truth of loving kindness. And may I swallow that and take it in, digest loving kindness. Then a deep breath and the cereal is definitely cooler now, dipping in again with this second taste of food, bite of food. May I, with this second bite of food, may I taste the truth of compassion, brokenhearted awareness for the life of the world. And then chewing, chewing, chewing the bones of the ancestors in the grain of corn and, be, and um, all the different grains that were mixed together in that bowl. Really tasting compassion, being with suffering. And the deep bow to work for compassionate action in the world. Whatever was chewed up, we spent 50 chews taking it in. Then a deep breath, spoon in again, taste the food in the mouth with this bite of food, this third bite of food. May I taste the truth and celebrate joy in the joy of others. Mudita, joy in the joy of others. Chew, 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 chew 50 times. And suddenly those ancestral teachings the four unlimited tastes coming to life in the mouth and swallowing joy in the joy of others, joy in the success of others, sympathetic joy, deep breath, and then the ultimate bite of equanimity, even-mindedness. With this fourth bite of food, may I taste the truth of even-mindedness in a runaway world. May I taste and know equanimity in a time that is not equanimous and a time where my bones are rattled and hunger is alive. Chew, chew, chew 50 times the deep truth of even-mindedness or upeka.
what a gift that was to eat in that way. And yes, by then the cereal was quite cold. Still we ate in silence, chewing mindfully, digesting those meals, really tasting the truth. And over the years, across the years, when I eat cereal this way, as this morning after our talk, I have the pleasure of going out into our dining room where Peter's making hot cereal for me and for Stephanie Casa, who's here visiting Joanna Macy, celebrating the publication of the 30th anniversary edition of World is Lover, World is Self. The, the, Stephanie came all the way to the Bay Area just to hold this book in her hands and pass it to Joanna and Joanna passing it to her. So they've, been, they've had quite a partnership this year. On June 22nd, Jesse's birthday, our son's birthday, this book will be in all of our hands, but 30, 30th anniversary of World is Lover. So I will have the pleasure of going out and sitting down and suggesting to our little gathering around the table, let's really chew this cereal. Let's really taste the truth of what it takes to be alive in these times. Let's let our practice blow through us like the soft warm winds of Hawaii and rattle our bones and bring us back to our senses. Give us the strength to remember that the most important thing is to, how did he say it? What we most need to do is to slow down our inquiry and hear the sound of the earth crying in our own bodies and to taste, to taste that sound. Can you do that? Taste the sound, tell the truth, rededicate, let your bones be rattled, remember your home food, take the time to digest what it means to be alive in these times and find nourishment from what's been discarded and forgotten, what's been um, just, what's, what is a true gift of the earth? Obviously, and this is really coming from my heart, so there aren't so many words to back it up, except the clear conviction that if we, when we study a book like The Deepest Peace, or World is Lover, World is Self, or any of the texts that we're privileged to pick up and work with. Our job is to have our bones be rattled, shaken up, so that all beings in our past, all beings born and to be born, our ancestors, as I love that Melissa Nelson in the Cultural Conservancy reminds us that our DNA is basically descendants and ancestors. D, descendants, N, ancestors, DNA. So when we taste the truth of the Tathagata's words, our bones are rattled, descendants and ancestors come into the spoon and the plate and are mixed up with the commitment to be a person who digests and gives back loving kindness, the capacity for compassion, the joy and celebration in the joy of others, joy in the celebration that a 92 year old woman and one of her truest and deepest students who's become a genuine friend and helper have brought forth a book like this. Joy in the joy of others and even mindedness, although we know the truth. So this is um, 
uh, my offering this morning and we can chew it up in whatever way is right for us and see what's digestible, what's impossible to, st to swallow and what gives us real um, courage to be peace in these um, challenging times. Thank you. And thank you very much for your practice. Thank you, Jane and, and team for making everything available. Thank you, Jean, for greeting us from the Hawaiian Islands, for letting us have a moment in Hawaii. And look at the light behind her coming up over her shoulder, over her left shoulder, uh, the light coming up, streaming down. Oh, good glory, Lord Almighty. Chew that up, everyone. Let's taste a little bit of taro. Let's chew that thick blue taro root until we can't even speak anymore. So um, hey. how would you have us continue, Jean? Thank you for giving me this opportunity and thank you, Earthland, for your writing, for staying close to the bone. Um, you know, when you read certain passages, this is, she's really talking about something deep and abiding and all beings in the 10 directions are present in the feast, in the gumbo feast. So 